I want women to know that I did not stand there. I did not freeze. I was not paralyzed, which is a reaction I could have had because it was so shocking. No, I fought. Those are the words of E. Jean Carroll, the rape victim who recently accused our president of sexual assault. And the focus of our episode today, which we're calling My Type of Victim. Hey, Madeline. Hi, Sharon. We are the Sex and Ethics Podcast. I'm Sharon Lamb. And I'm Madeline Brote. And today we're bringing to you the episode, My Type of Victim. And I'm also very pleased to say that we are not talking about waiting for six months for to comment on breaking news. This is breaking news, been all over the news from the interview I heard on MSNBC with Lawrence O'Donnell uh, last Friday, I think, through multiple stories in uh, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., Yeah, it's been all over the place for sure. Mm -hmm. And we call this podcast My Type of Victim because we want to address the huge burden we place on victims to be a certain kind of victim and also to reflect on President Trump's comment that he couldn't have raped her because she was not his type. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in other news first, I do want to say that there's some interesting things happening about college campuses, Title IX and rape. It turns out that some, there was some ruling that said that even at private institutions, uh, the investigators of a rape on campus have to give the offender due process according to the law, which of course will make it much more difficult for campuses to rid themselves of serial rapists on campus and will make it less likely that victims will report. Right. And one of the things that I think gets missed in that conversation about those changes is that it's not like these procedures are set up for victims in the first place. Like this was already part of the process. They're just making it more rigid and more requirements happen, which is silly. Right, right. I mean, it's it's asking non-legal people on campuses to follow legal rules instead of the process that they've set up within their university that's gone through vetting with their lawyers too, and which they, which hopefully even students were a part of creating when they developed it. But anyway, I also want to talk about this research article by Deborah Herbenick, who mm. is, I think, at Indiana University or University of Indiana, forget which, but she writes about the rise of choking during sex. And I bring this up in, a, in an episode about rape because, you know, rape is violent and violence within consensual sex, if it's on the rise, seems to me really part of uh, rape culture and a huge problem. And will also get in the way of uh, rape victims being able to prove as much as they can prove that they've been raped. But I wanted to say a little bit about her finding. I think it was about 7% of, of women were choked unexpectedly during sex. Wow. I know. Wow. I know. That's so high. I mean, like, you can also say, like, 7% is not that much. But also, like, this is such an extreme act 
to spring on someone like that. I know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna shock you even more that that 13% of girls 14 through 17 had been choked. Wow. When they were in the process of doing something sexual with some guy. Yeah, introduction to introduction to you know with these vulnerable girls who are even you know below the age of consent though I don't want to get into that right now but yeah that's messy but you're right about like horn being such a huge influence right like I don't think that that was so common when I was younger I don't think I had heard of that before Oh, I think I had heard of it as some sort of unusual, bizarre practice. I mean, for all the Law and Order type shows I watch, of course I've heard of it. It's going to be on like CSI or Law and Order, but it's yeah. not something I had heard of in talking with friends or even as a therapist talking to people. The only context I have had with it in my clinical work is talking with domestic violence victims. Strangulation is actually one of the highest risks for death for women who are in intimate partner violence relationships because you can accidentally strangle someone very quickly, more quickly than people realize and cut off oxygen to the brain. So I'm also really scared, terrified for like the physical health of these kiddos, not knowing what they're doing. Yeah, or in thinking that this is fun or this is norm or that they have to acquiesce to somebody's wishes because this is what gets them off. Mm-hmm. I have to say there's a final statistic on that, that almost a quarter of the women she interviewed or she surveyed have felt scared during sex. Oh, I know. I know. Power and control. You should not. I mean, fear and pleasure are antithetical. I think, I think most so. people. It's just a really sad statistic. And I hope to hear more about that. And I want to support this research, which isn't really about pornography, but is so connected to, you know, new culture of what's acceptable in sex. And I just want to had our consent talk on another episode, but I just want to repeat again, consent is not enough. When we hear this is the kind of sex that's going on, mm. or a quarter of the women have had scary sex, I think it's not okay to say, but she consented to it. Bare minimum. And we want something more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, now on to E. Jean Carroll, Elizabeth Jean Carroll. I guess she's called Jean, so and we can respect, respectfully call her Ms. Carroll, who Wonderful. has been an advice columnist for Elle magazine mm-hmm. many years. And let's see if I can summarize what happened. She was in Bergdorf Goodman. Trump recognized her and they had a conversation where he said, help me buy, pick out something for some woman. And it sounded flirtatious. You know, he had asked her to try on for him. a, I think she's at a blue negligee and she was joking around and kind of saying, <laughs> laughing and saying, no, I think you should try it on. I'm going to get you to try it on. Which I, uh, not to interrupt your retelling of her story, Sharon, but I think like that moment for me was like, oh, this could have been me. Yeah. Like if I was in this type of situation, she responded the way that I would have responded, right? No, thank you, but I'm going to make it a joke. Yeah. I suppose I should yeah. keep that for later. I can joke it off. I'm in power. I can handle yeah. the situation. <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to try this on for you. And she was laughing a lot. She was laughing a lot in the interview, too, with Lawrence O'Donnell. And, you know, speaking to this issue of, of the performance of victimhood, he kept clucking his mouth and showing appropriate 
sort of sympathetic face to a victim telling the story, which was going sort of diagonal to her affect, her affect? was kind of, whoa, Very different. Really kind of funny. You know, it was wrong. It was awful. It was, it hurt, she said at one point. But, you know, if there was something that, you know, that there were funny elements to it. And, you know, until it wasn't. Yeah. And I also think that kind of speaks to her as a whole. In this interview, Miss Carroll does not just talk about like her assault by President Trump. She also talks about assaults that happened from multiple other people. Her being able to have that orthogonal affect in comparison to the interviewer is because she's dealt with the reality of what it's like to be a woman and to have multiple experiences of inappropriate behavior. Right, and that is what is so important about the Me Too movement. It's that we, everyone is included. I think I read, so I can't remember who I was reading when uh, she was writing, I think it was a tweet from somebody this morning saying that uh, when she was on jury duty, when she was being selected for jury duty, a lawyer said, and I think it was for a rape case, a lawyer said, how many of the women here today have experienced a sexual assault or sexual harassment? And all of them raised their mm -hmm. hand, so he couldn't dismiss any of the female jurors because of that. But that's me too. I mean, we're all included, and we've all mm -hmm. had full experiences. I don't know how to be cool enough to start a tweet or a thread that people add on to, but I've been thinking a lot about how, over a lifetime, I can just sort of make a list of all the me yeah. too, not just one big one, but all the little things. Mm -hmm all those little murders. And I can't remember a second wave feminist called Little Rape, one of the pieces from the second wave that you can find in the book, Dear Sisters. So, but anyway, what was great about Me Too was the inclusion of everybody. I think that what we're dealing with now is the inclusion of all types of victims. And it pains me that people have been, some people have been angry with her for her attitude and mm. her unwillingness to call this a rape and her performance for the media. I mean, some of what she says is, uh, I'm a mature woman, I can handle it, I can keep going. You know, my life has gone on, I'm a happy woman. She says that, yeah. it's absolutely true. While a three minute attack can cause trauma for life for some women, it can also be passed over without denial. Yeah. Just passed over and said, this happened. I hate men. Or as she said, some men are hideous. And, yeah. But I'm having a happy life. That's what she did. I think one of the things that we've talked about a lot before, Sharon, is, is and you wrote an entire book about it, that lots of people feel like once you've been assaulted, that is the only thing that matters about you. That is the first thing people should know about you. That's the first thing that guides like all your reactions to everything. And that's not the case because people are more complicated than that, right? This does not have to come first in the way that they view the world. This can come fifth, sixth, fifteenth, and that all this other stuff is more important to them. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're ruined forever. Yeah. yeah. So here's an op-ed from uh, the Washington Examiner. Forget the name. Maybe you can tell me the I name. I can look it up, even though I really didn't like this article. No, it was an op-ed, though. It was op-ed. And the, it is by Madeline Fry. Oh, no. I don't know how I feel about this person. Using <laughs> the mad name. name. <laughs> 
She even spells it the same. Oh, Madeline, we're fighting. If you're mad, it can go any direction. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, she said, to any rape victim, Carol's comments must seem astounding. No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. And it's uh, it ends with saying she does she does a disservice to rape victims by pretending it was no big deal. I don't think she's pretending. I mean, and she did say she's never had sex with a man since then. I mean, yeah. she's got a happy life, and he's just kind of, you know, saying, and that's all right with her, because too many men in her life have been, quote-unquote, hideous. But she's not saying that's true for all rape victims. And, and why can't she just say, I am this kind of rape victim, you are that kind of rape victim, mm-hmm. and just because I was able to move on and handle it and keep going doesn't mean you're obligated to yeah there's something implicit in what madeline fry is saying here which is that because of me too all survivors have to talk in the same way make the same choices because it furthers our political agenda in my experience of movements it never has been about forcing others to make choices but rather thoughtfully examining our own choices and seeing if we can use them for political gain if that makes sense yeah like I think Anita Hill is a really good example. Like she chose to take this experience and have it be a political point during the Supreme Court justices' hearings, as did, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting our fellow psychologist. Christine Blasey Ford. Yeah. She did that as well. But just because these two women chose to do that does not mean that every single person needs to go about it the exact same way. And I think that doesn't respect the choices of victims. Right. And I have to say that we all saw what might be the ideal victim in front of the the Senate or the... Absolutely. Dr. Ford was amazing. I mean, and she was, she looked traumatized. She was, uh, her voice was shaking. It was hard for her to speak. She was brave. And what good did it do anyway? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was an article a long time ago, it turned into a book by a sociologist called Amanda Conradi, spelled with a K, and she interviewed rape victims who were took the stand. And I always remember the one rape victim who was an athlete and, you know, had and was kind of a powerful woman. Her rapist. Uh, There was a mistrial. Uh, The jury couldn't decide first time. And she said the second one, she was going to make herself cry. She was going to play up the victim persona. You know, she did. She got him convicted that way because Mm -hmm. the way she was acting in the first trial, the jury just couldn't believe she was, she could have been raped. Anyway, I want to go back to what you said about using your story for personal gain, because that's exactly what Carol was doing when she said that the reason why she doesn't want to call what happened to her rape was she felt it would be, well, she used it as a platform to talk about women on the border who are, in her words, being raped around the clock down there without any protection. And she just, as we're saying, Me Too includes everyone. She's saying, well, if it does, I'm, mine is a is a small harm compared to what we're, what these women are experiencing. So don't put all this attention on me. You know, let's take care of them. That's how I, I understand it the same way. I don't think it has had its intended impact, which is really unfortunate. When I was thinking about this and I was thinking about stuff that I read by Sarah Ahmed, Ahmed, Mm -hmm. Uh, She wrote Living a Feminist Life, and she has this whole series that she's working on right now about complaint. The idea is that she talks about is that 
by complaining, you are bringing something into existence and you are automatically viewed as a complainer, even if this is your first complaint. And that in the process of complaining, you re-experience the system that has created this complaint when responding to the complaint, if that makes sense. Yeah, she, yeah. She writes about it way better than I can. I think it's interesting that even though this woman is asking people to explicitly like not make a big deal about it and to not center her because of her identities, they are centering her and not focusing on the people who she feels are less advantaged as victims than she is. Yeah. There's not any of this actual attention to people's experiences at the border because it is a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And um, I mean, people say you're just, she was, why didn't she report this earlier? Why didn't she come out? And why is she doing it now? Well, I love her story about the two friends. The two friends are like the feminist public right now. One friend says, this is rape, report it to the police. Mm -hmm. You have to, which was 52 at the time. And mm -hmm. the other friend said, oh, forget it. He's going to have, you know, so many lawyers and he's going to bury you. Just sounded like a reasonable decision and that I would support any rape victim who decides not to go to court, even though mm -hmm. I think they would. And can we make it more explicit for our listeners why we wouldn't make, why you wouldn't blame them? Because I know, <laughs> but I don't think necessarily that our listeners are as familiar with the research about reporting systems as you are oh well maybe you can help a okay. little bit since it's been a while before i've read that work but but personally for me i hate the word journey i was just about to say it's a journey for <laughs> it's a process it, i've just as a therapist i've worked with rape victims over time their feelings about it change and their i would want their first goal to be to take care of themselves and do what's best for themselves in the beginning and and not necessarily put other people's safety before their own mm -hmm. and also you really do have to be brave to go into a courtroom i've seen 12 year old girls reduced to tears mean defense attorney for an offender mm -hmm. and you know you just have to be strong enough and why would i why would i want somebody who didn't feel they were strong enough to do that to put themselves through that if they've already been traumatized now you yeah. tell me what the research says <laughs> so the research says that when you experience a type of intimate violation like this you lose your sense of control so empowerment perspectives are always really helpful for regaining that sense of control so that's what the research says that backs up everything that Sharon just, but also from a systemic perspective, you think about the values that we want to have focused on rape victims are not the values that are part of the criminal justice system. Right. The values of the criminal justice system are to punish. They are not bit built for victims. The way that we've set up the justice system is to criticize and question victims and the perpetrators or the accused perpetrators, I'm sorry, have more rights and more will in the situation than perhaps we would ideally like victims to have. The process of reporting is so difficult that some scholars wrote a whole book about it called The Second Rape, that it's so traumatizing that it operates in the same way. I'm totally spacing on their names though. But you know, it can be empowering. It's just that you can't make that decision for someone and you do want to help them to come to that decision on their own. Um, yeah. And as we know, people do come to that decision years later. And that's why many states are, uh, especially for sexual abuse, are reconsidering their statutes of uh, limitation. Yes. 
for that. Okay, so now I want to turn to the actual assault, and I want to give a trigger warning for people as I read listening as I read this. And and I mean, even though Ms. Carroll stopped short of using the word rape, we're going to call it a rape. Mm-hmm. She can use whatever she wants. I don't think we're being disrespectful to her. We're just doing no. it as it is in terms of the law and in terms of all the research we know. But anyway, just to say what happened, he opens the, uh, he pushes her into, they're at this Bergdorf Goodman dressing rooms. And these are, there are individual doors to the dressing rooms. And mostly those doors are locked. This is what she explained on Mm -hmm. MSNBC. But this one of the dressing room doors was actually open. And she is, she's describing herself laughing all the way while they're joking and they're going to it. And in her mind, she's, they're still joking around and you're going to try on this blue negligee and who knows, but this all happened very quickly then while she Mm -hmm. was still kind of laughing, he opens the overcoat, unzips his pants and quote, forcing his fingers around my private area thrust his penis halfway or completely, I'm not certain, inside me. It turns into a colossal struggle. I am wearing a pair of sturdy black patent leather four-inch Barney's high heels. And I have to say that she, in the story that she's telling on MSNBC, she keeps telling what designer has made, I mean, it's probably I know. She makes some choices that I personally wouldn't make. Like, I would not choose to be photographed in that same outfit. I probably would not have kept that blazer, but... It is evidence. It does make a powerful picture, for sure. Right, right. Okay, so here, she says, but she's saying this. I don't know why she has to say it's from Barney's, but she's in a pair of sturdy black patent leather, four-inch Barney's high heels, quote, which puts my height around 6'1", and I try to stomp Ooh. her foot. You go, girl. I mean, that's yeah. what, a good tactic. I try to push him off with my one free hand. For some reason, I keep holding my purse with the other. I totally understand that detail, that sort me of... Too. There's that kind of, I can't believe this is happening to me, sort of well, Yeah. It's that kind of, like, exasperated, like, oh, I guess I have to do this, but I'm not gonna change anything else kind of deal. Yeah. I finally get a knee up high enough to push him out and off, and I turn, open the door, and run out of the dressing room. Yep. So, I mean, that's all I want to read, but the a colossal struggle is something that, you know, many people who experienced attempted rapes have probably been through, and hers was effective. And I don't think she's saying all of you should fight as hard as I do or be as aware. And this is the only way to be. This is just her rape story. And, you know, what's the opposite of let a thousand flowers bloom? It's kind of, you know, let a thousand demons be shown, you know, or awful. I mean, this is her story and it deserves to be heard. And it's one story. And anyone who didn't fight, who was paralyzed, who was a frozen who didn't stomp a foot who didn't try to push someone off shouldn't feel ashamed and anyone who dropped their purse and fought (laughs) with two hands shouldn't feel superior (laughs) right I think one of the things that's most interesting about this as like a case example for like looking at different types of victims 
is that she did do a lot of what society asked victims to do. Like she aggressively fought and she's still not being a good enough victim because according to Madeline Fry, like she's not calling it a rape and she has some responsibility to have reported it at the time to prevent harm from happening to others is what Madeline Fry from the Washington Examiner thinks. And I think that's a indication of how much like society has a certain set of standards for victims that are never achievable. Yeah, and I want to say something about the way Trump did this in her story. Mm. And that's that there was some likelihood that this could have been a consensual sex experience. Yeah. She was I don't think it's beyond the dressing room. They were private. They were still flirting. Why did he in old-fashioned words take her? Why didn't he keep pursuing her? That's just power. It's just he wants what he wants when he wants it. And he wasn't interested in dalliance or uh, Mm -hmm. uh, flirtation. He was aroused by something and it was like, I'm aroused. I get what I want right now. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to give you any power in saying yes or no. I might not get what I want. Exactly. Speaking of him and how he's dealing with it, I thought his response to the accusations was very interesting. Uh, It was horrifying as a choice for me. And it was very on brand. Yeah. What exactly did he say? Like, she's not my type? First, she's not my type. Second, I never met her or whatever like that. First, she's not my type. And I have to say, I almost punched dinner guest the other evening, white sister man who's 74 years old, who said, how old was she? 52-year-old woman? Ah! Way, like, why would somebody want to rape? somebody as if people rape people for their sex appeal or something like that instead of for the power that they are getting off on oh okay, my god so let's clarify this for our listeners sexual assault is not about sex it is about power yeah sexual assault is about is not about sex it is about power it's about having sex with it's about taking sex having sex to prove your power and and assert your power Oh my goodness. So anyway, but she's not my type means that, I have to say, it means that there is a type he likes to rape. She doesn't happen to be. (laughs) I didn't even think that all the way through. Oh my gosh. He just admitted that. (laughs) No, he just said she's not my type. I think he means she's not my type of somebody I'd be attracted to, but he didn't say that. So I'm saying, yeah, well, so maybe, you know, this one time out of all, what is it, 20 plus people who've, um, accused him of trying to uh, rape them or he assaulted. It's a huge number. You know, it just means that he has a variety of interests. I mean, any woman, any woman might be able to serve to, what do we call it, like boost his ego or power over women. So anyway, I don't know. What a world, what a world. But I do, I guess I wanted to just sort of end our podcast if we're coming to the end of it now by thinking about the variety of ways in which women experience victimhood or being a victim and how we can support every kind of victim and every kind of sexual assault so that we don't have we don't have to sort of put forward the good victims blonde victims, the sad victims, the white victims over any 
the victims who were traumatized for life over victims who might not fit with expectations. Yeah. I want to center the victims who have messy stories that are confusing and gray, but you trust them because that's their experience. And I want to hear from the people who, you know, may be challenging to interact with as a result of their coping with an assault. I'm sure, Sharon, that you've had a variety of clients who have been assaulted and are really challenging to deal with in therapy and have really complicated and messed up lives because of their experiences. I know. It's so funny when you kind of dig, dig, dig underneath this diagnosis or that one, whether it's borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder, you get chronic trauma underneath it. You know, to go out on a limb here, you might want to just say that psychiatry has been built on ignoring the chronic trauma that produced these diagnoses to support a whole, you know, uh, system of oppression. Medical. Medical psychiatric oppression. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the case. I mean, borderline personality disorder is well-founded for that, but I think it's happening in a lot of other places too. Like the the women who are pathologized for having more feelings around their period and now they have PMDD when in fact they're just like annoyed and angry Mm. around their periods because it feels triggering for them or something. Right. And I don't, I do not doubt that there is a group of symptoms that, you know, are related to what we call borderline personality disorder that go with each other or a group of symptoms that Mm -hmm. kind of hang with each other that people call bipolar. And, but I do think that we need to consider that those are on ways that people have coped with their trauma, whether it's perhaps attachment trauma Mm -hmm. or uh, sexual trauma. And I kind of bring this up now too, because I want to just shout out a little, today's my publication date. Oh, yes. The Not Good Enough Mother in that book. I I talk about the different mothers I've evaluated who have had such chronic trauma in their lives. And as I plan my mini book tour and what chapters I'm going to read, I think I read a chapter and then I think, oh my gosh, I can't read that one trauma. Uh, you know, I don't know who's in that audience. I can't read yeah. that one. So I had to find maybe a more boring chapter to read out loud just to make sure I'm not going to trigger anybody who's mm-hmm. experienced physical or sexual abuse or rape or, and many of the mothers who evaluated for family forensic evaluations, they've experienced a long checklist of traumas, not mm-hmm. just I don't want to say just a three-minute rape, but just sort of echoing what Ms. Carroll says. Their experience is is horrific in a way mm-hmm. that a three-minute rape, you know, isn't, or yeah. at least her. <laughs> well, when we think about this, right, we're not trying to create the trauma Olympics, right, where, like, someone is, like, more victimized than another person, but you can recognize that if you have experienced more of this kind of trauma in your life, you will probably be more impacted by it because just a amount of exposure relates to sometimes the impact on the person. Yeah, but and I there's think- a whole bunch of privilege too that helps you to overcome some of it. Absolutely. And she had power in other areas in her mm-hmm. life. She certainly did. And, and, and she was able to say, okay, I just don't have sex with men anymore. I'm going to have a great life for the next 23 years. 
Yeah, I know you mentioned your book, and I'd love to give a little bit more context for the listeners about what your book is about. But the clients, that, the mothers that you were evaluating are already involved in the justice system, right? They're involved with DCF. They're, having, they're being evaluated by you because they might get their children taken away. And so lots of folks who are in that position have been marginalized in a whole bunch of ways, economically, often related to their gender, a whole bunch of other things. So your book really looks at how these factors kind of impact people. Yes, absolutely. And in the end, though, I mean, the sad thing is that I become a part of that system because I do have to put the interests of the child first. So... Mm -hmm. And I do have to judge whether somebody, at least at this point in time, for this growing child who's been in foster care. Are they appropriate or not? Yeah. Are they? Yeah. So anyway. And I think yeah. that's part of what makes your book very interesting. If you want to take a second to explain it a little bit, because we just mentioned it as like a case example and not so much like what the actual book is about. No, it's part memoir and part in-depth look at how I do these evaluations with my personal story as a mother, but also the personal stories that these mothers and kids told me. Of course, ethically, I've combined the several cases into one for each of mm -hmm. them. But I think that's all I want to say, and that if people want okay. to read more, they can go to their indie bookstore, <laughs> shout yeah. out to indie bookstores, and take a look at it, because it should be there as of today, publication. What's day. the title of it, though? I don't think you've mentioned that yet. Oh, The Not Good Enough Mother. Okay. Beacon Press. So thanks. That's a way to end this serious conversation on a lighter note, I mm -hmm. guess, book publication. And we want to uh, do our usual shout out to Dan and say thanks so much for your editing. Thank you. We appreciate you. Dan did remind me through an email what our sign off is. Oh, great. <laughs> it's not just be good. Be good. <laughs> so I say be good and you say stay ethical. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready to sign off? And thanks for uh -huh. listening, everyone. Be good. Stay ethical. <laughs> Till next time. Bye-bye.